Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Kara. Will, we have so, so <laughs> much to recap today on this Sunday pod. A little bit of a regular season feel in a way, but we're recapping a ton of bowl games. Um, mainly, we're going to recap the fact that Emmanuel Acho, Danny Cannell, they're not going to be watching this year's national championship. Which oh, no. Oh, that's ground. My whole day is ruined. My disappointment is immeasurable, Connor. You know, I was just going to have TweetDeck pulled up with Emmanuel Acho tweets and then Danny Cannell tweets during the game. Yep. Although it's kind of pointless because you know they're not going to be watching. They're not going to be partaking. It's too bad. Darn SEC bias. It gave us our third all-SEC national championship in the last 11 years. You just you hate to see those things, especially... You know, when they were making such great points about uh, Georgia being propped up as a result of the SEC and using bowl results for a bunch of six and seven win teams to justify that. Listen, Mizzou is no good. Therefore, Alabama is no good. We've said it on this podcast. They've they've keyed into our conspiracy and I'm getting I'm sweating. You know, Georgia hadn't beat any top 20 teams leading up to that. Now, very convenient to leave out the fact that they had beat two top 25 teams like a drum, but... <laughs> the Acho AP Top to 20, our favorite result. Yeah, I mean, who, who really cares about the Top 25? It's all about the Top 20. So, uh, great points all around, but we have so, so much to get to. We're going to recap all these different bowl games. Like, it, it's kind of crazy to think about how much has happened since the Birmingham Bowl, which was... That we'll have even that to get to today. We're going to do a couple of these with a our new favorite segment, the um, bowl games in ninety seconds. Yes, because sounds like a plan. <laughs> we, yeah, there's there are fourteen pages of notes sitting right here, and we have just so many different things to get into. So let's let's start with a game that everybody was talking about as one of the premier semifinal matchups. The game that I was at, absolute blast, the Orange Bowl, Georgia, Michigan. It was a blast, not just because Georgia rolled and I got to be around Georgia fans and was, you know, spent a ton of time with with Candler and, and our producer, Dan Matthews, as well. Mm-hmm. I was going to have fun no matter what at this game. It was an awesome atmosphere, but got to tailgate. Scene was fantastic. I'm going to give a, a little love here to Michigan fans for, for a quick sec before we get into all things Georgia and what this game really meant. Michigan fans were there. And they were loud. We mm-hmm. kept trying to figure out what's the ratio of Michigan fans to Georgia fans. And we're like, ah, you know, it's like 50-50. And then like 20 minutes later, it'd be like, eh, 60-40 Michigan. And then by halftime, we're like, okay, this is like 70-30 Michigan. That's what it felt like. And that's impressive to do considering how much Georgia fans show up and show out for those types of games. And I don't think necessarily Michigan fans were arrogant or anything like that. I mean, I know we all have our own specific vision of what a Michigan man is and all those different things. But I was confirmed of this take that I've had for a couple of years. Been squatting on this take for, for a little bit. Michigan fans always have to be wearing at least two pieces of Michigan gear to let you know that they root for Michigan. Okay. I promise you, you cannot unsee this. Once you see it, you're going to think of it every single time. Michigan hat, Michigan shirt, Michigan shirt, Michigan shorts, Michigan shirt, Michigan sandals, something. Michigan Crocs, I don't know. They got to have at least two pieces of flair, to borrow the phrase from the from office space. It's unbelievable. And I, I remember um, when we were at the Grand Canyon a couple years ago, and it's in Arizona, and it's in, uh, it's in June. And I'm seeing like these Michigan fans decked out. 
head to toe, like family of Michigan fans decked out in gear. And I'm just like, all right, it's Arizona in July. You can just chill out. Just just take a beat, all right? We, we get it. We, we understand you went to Michigan or you root for Michigan. Congratulations. Good on you. Ivy League of the Midwest or Ivy School of the Midwest, whatever. Connor, who is more proud of their fandom, Michigan men or fans of The Ohio State University? You know, it's a very different fan base. Okay. Fans. We're going to get to this. We're going we're gonna to get to all things Georgia. It's a very different fan base. I think there's a 5% group of Ohio State fans that are among the most insane in this sport. And I mean like insane, unrealistic, like the type of people who are, who are saying like fire Ryan Day after losing to Michigan. Right. Like they are a different breed of crazy. They would fit in very well with the SEC. I mean, they're, they're probably more crazy than the vast majority of SEC fans. I think that's like 5% of Ohio State fans. I know Ohio State fans that are, that are great mm-hmm. and they get kind of a bad rap. Michigan fans kind of surprised me in that way though, in that they were somewhat realistic. They mm. kind of saw the air go out of the building and Michigan fans got a tough dose of reality. They really did. Like it didn't matter that they showed up with bad intentions and that they hadn't trailed by more than four points all year. They they saw what it was like to watch a team just suffocate them from the jump. That's what Georgia did. Mm-hmm. They sucked the life out of Michigan in every possible way. Stetson Bennett, he was the best version of himself from the jump. Todd Munkin, that game plan was brilliant. Mailman delivered in every possible way that you could have asked for in route to Orange Bowl MVP honors. Georgia was the first team to start a playoff game with four consecutive scoring drives and became the first Michigan opponent to start the game with five scoring drives since 2010. Think of all the bad football that Michigan had to deal with in the the latter years of Brady Hoke and the fact that that streak was still able to stand throughout all that time. That's how good the Georgia offense was early to be able to put that away. And we talked about how important that was, was getting out to that great start and following that game script that Georgia wanted. And it wasn't just Brock Bowers doing ridiculous unhuman Brock Bowers type things because yeah that happened early I actually thought Michigan did an all right job on him but I loved what Stetson did being able to find James Cook that throwing catch recognizing the mismatch with him out wide Jermaine Burton route it was weird (laughs) it was so weird I don't really know what happened with that because they both kind of stopped and looked up and, and and caught the ball and Jermaine Burton just found the ball better and it was off to the races after that but it was an absolute dime it ended up being from Stetson Bennett I tell you what, I love watching Georgia from that behind the end zone view because I feel like you get a different appreciation for their defensive discipline, which a couple years ago when, when, when I first went to that game with Candler, mm-hmm. that's what I said, like watching that game from the end zone, you see just how their eyes don't necessarily fall for the window dressing and all those different things. And they're just see ball, hit ball. You're not going to play action them. You're not necessarily going to be able to, to run RPOs against them successfully, run these stretch plays. And Georgia just is all about that. And it's so fun to watch that. It didn't disappoint this time either with where we were, where we were set up in, in, in Candler Suite. Um, but you see the, the team speed, all those different things, how remarkable the Kobe Dean was, Jordan Davis, stride for stride with a tailback, Nolan Smith, the way that he rushed the passer. I actually thought there was one time where Georgia brought this pressure that looked like a three-man weave up the gut, mm-hmm. but it was a five-man rush, and it was just like dudes coming from every which, which way. I don't even know how Cade McNamara escaped and got through by foot, and then Nolan Smith, of course, was able to drag him down by his feet. But... From that angle, I really tried to dial into what Georgia was doing offensively as well. Hold on, and it really was impressive. Quick. Can we use that Georgia team speed thing to talk about 
my favorite play of the Jim Harbaugh era, the five-yard flea flicker. You know, <laughs> we had heard going into this one, and I think, who was I talking to? I spent like a half hour talking to Mike Griffith, I remember, um, before, like the day, the day of the game, and we're, one of the things we were talking about, and one of the things he said was like, everything I'm hearing is Georgia's going to be ready for all this trickeration that Michigan's gonna try and pull off. Like Michigan is, it's very well known that Michigan is gonna try and get into the bag here and see what they can do because talent wins out right. in these games. The five yard flea flicker was, uh, you know, I've seen better plays that the James Franklin kind of fake punts bomb, see if we can bait Arkansas mm -hmm. into this interception. Like that play, I guess, maybe a little bit more creative. We'll get to Arkansas in a little bit here, but in the grand scheme of things, yeah, probably not the most efficient play. It was just funny because it's like, okay, we've done it. We've tricked George. All right, and checked out. It's like, no, no, go against your brain. You want to win the game. <laughs> that could have been a pick. That easily could have You're been. You're right. It's just, it, like. like having an incompletion is fine, but if you check out a flea flicker, you've already lost. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, and it very much felt like Michigan was taken out early on in that game. I, I love just, Georgia's offensive game plan was, was such a key to that. And the reason why it wasn't this kind of grind of a start, a 7-0 start, and they just came out firing. I mean, I, the, the spacing that Todd Munkin had early to get the high percentage throws, trust the speed on the outside, trust your blocking. Stetson truly made great read after great read. That was one of the things I noticed. The downfield throws were kind of the highlights and the Burton, the, the Cook plays, like. But I think my favorite play that he made all day was Munkin dialed up this like play action rollout and you could tell that Stetson really wanted to air it out. Like he was looking downfield, A.D. Mitchell, and he's like, oh man, I want so badly. Cause he's, Stetson was feeling himself. He mm -hmm. saw the little dance, he saw the little celebration there. Like Stetson was on a different kind of level. But the, the deep route deep route was covered. He was bracketed. So instead of forcing it after a really nice start and being like, let's just let my guy go make a play, Stetson tucked it and ran it for 20 yards. And that's when you kind of knew how dialed in he was. Because with Stetson, he has to be perfect with his decision-making if Georgia is going to give Bama any sort of chance in, in this game. Like We're going to talk about the, ch the national championship here, but if they're going to get over that hump, that, that's, that's got to be a consistent theme. Is Stetson's decision-making is on a different type of level, and mm -hmm. in this game, it was. For what it's worth, two things can be true at the same time. One is that that is the best game that, would you agree with this, best game that we've seen Stetson Bennett play? Yeah, like considering the opponent, the stage and everything, yeah. Considering the opponent, considering the stage, you know, like you could get into, is that the most impressive win of the Kirby Smart era? Um, you'd probably, the only comp in my opinion is is 2017 Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl. Mm -hmm. But kind of given what Michigan was, was built up to be from a defensive standpoint and all those different things, like given the pressure that was riding on Kirby, whereas it kind of wasn't quite there in the same way against Heisman Trophy winner, all those different things. I would tend to say that this one was a little bit more impressive, but I guess that's a different discussion for a different time. Appreciate that game from Stetson because there are a lot of people who didn't think he could play well enough to win a semifinal game and to get to a national championship. But the other thing that can be true at the same time, I disagree with people saying that their impression of Stetson Bennett changed based on that performance. You're either trusting Kirby Smart's judgment or you're not. Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple. I mean, the good news is that we were reminded how much better Stetson is when he gets off to that good start and when he gets the high percentage throws going early. And it goes double when the defense also does some heavy lifting, which once again, it did. And we got those reminders of, oh yeah, this, this, this was a historic defense. We, we probably shouldn't have written them off after what they did against Alabama. 
I said to Candler when it was 20 to three at the end of the first half and Michigan went three and out, it's over. Vince Carter gif is done. Stick a fork in them. There's no way that Michigan was coming back from that deficit. Then I played the game, how long would it take Michigan to score 20 points against this Georgia defense? Um, How'd that go? I think, um, you know, it's a fun hypothetical I like to play out in my head. <laughs> I've been able to do it during a lot of these Georgia games in, in 2021. When it was 34 to three, I said it would take 14 quarters for Michigan to get there. <laughs> Yeah, at some point, Georgia would have to get tired. I feel like they just want to go yeah. home. They'd be like, all right, dude, you have a great day. It's 120 to 14. Go ahead and take it. Just just go ahead. That That's fine. In hindsight, maybe, um, the run the damn ball shirts that Michigan wore might have been a bit ambitious in terms of trolling. Man, you can't do that. And like, I love chalks and I love people calling their shot. Boy, is that embarrassing. As an offensive lineman, I don't even know your name, dog. Like, not being mean, but like, they won that offensive line trophy. Joe Moore Award. You're right, yep. the Joe Moore Award. And it's like, okay, like, hey, this is the key factor. Key factor is like, no, they got eight up, bro. <laughs> they wasn't even close. There was nothing Michigan could have done. I mean, it really, there, there was not. And this was a reminder that in playoff games, talent still wins. Mm -hmm. After Saturday, after Saturday's or Friday's results, I guess, sorry, this week's been a blur. And if anybody knows what day of the week it is, these like last two weeks, Christmas and New Year's, you're you're a crazy person. I consider myself a pretty organized person. I, I have lost track of days of the week at this point. It mm -hmm. really, it's all just kind of one big, one big day. Um, the more talented team in terms of 247 sports, talent composite, is 12 and two during that era, which has been tracked since 2015. And the two losses were both Ohio State losing to Clemson. <laughs> yeah, which yes, checks out. Yeah, and, and not much of a disparity there at, at all. And we're talking about, you know, losing to pretty generational quarterbacks as well. We have still never seen a team outside of the top 10 in that category beat a team inside the top 10, which that's what Michigan was trying to do. That's what Cincinnati was trying to do. Both of them came up very, very short. Aiden Hutchinson, <sighs> look, just maybe leave that game off, the, the NFL draft film, the highlight clips. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to be there for him. Jamari Sawyer was awesome. I mean, incredible to see him back and healthy. We talked about how that matchup was going to be key, and we know who won it by day's end. He was neutralized. He The only big play he made was when he blew up that pass on the far side, and it was immediately after he missed time the snap and had a rare offsides penalty. Like, that's how kind of in his head he was. He's like, man, I, I'm... I kind of just got to go full send on this one and see if I can time one perfectly because a lot of the things that he was doing just were not effective and he was kind of taken out of this game. And look, he's still a phenomenal player and he's still going to get buzzed as number one overall pick. But, you know, for all the different things we talked about with him coming into this one, it wasn't exactly a, hey, see, Aiden Hutchinson should have won the Heisman Trophy type of game. It wasn't exactly the best day for the takes about, oh, Aiden Hutchinson is better than Will Anderson. But that's not really the argument that everybody cares about. I don't think anybody cares about another argument, the Kirby-Mark Rick comps, which Kirby's been to two national championships and five years here. I don't think it's fair to keep doing the Mark Rick comps, although I understand that's what everybody's gonna do if he doesn't beat Bama in the national championship. I get it. I just think getting to a national championship is a different story and getting 10 days worth of buzz for your team talking about ending the 1980 jokes as opposed to like just getting to an SEC championship and having that opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's just different. It's just different. And I think Kirby deserves to kind of be considered in his in a different 
elk for that. And you know, one of the things that I talked about with with Mike, uh, with Mike Griffith, was how, and I totally forgot about this. Kirby hasn't gotten an extension since 2018. This is a contract year for him. And look around, like Kirby is going to be getting a fat raise mm-hmm. at season's end, pretty much no matter what. But it also, so much of it was going to depend on how these two games were going to play out for him. And when you've got Mel Tucker making this kind of money, James Franklin making this type of money, like Kirby's not just going to be sitting there at seven and a half million bucks. You know, he's, he's due for a big chunk of change. And you think about what's riding on this for him in addition to all the 1980 stuff. Like, yeah, it's not just about money. But Mike was like, look, there's like 20 to $30 million that's going to probably sway based on the results of these games for Kirby Smart moving forward. So just kind of an alternate storyline to keep in the back of your mind. But it's still the same as it's always been for Georgia, for Kirby. It's all about ending the 1980 jokes. And of course, it's going to take taking down Bama to do just that. Will, before we move on to Bama, any thoughts on the beat down in Miami? Yeah, I think this is about what we expected. Big time line of scrimmage win for Georgia. Uh, it was it, like, I had a tweet that was like, Michigan is like Georgia, except Michigan has grocery braggers and Georgia has five stars. It's just like every every positional matchup was like, oh, this guy's an NFL player. This guy is not. All right, this game's over. Uh, I hate to, hate to be that whatever, but like you said, Stetson, great game by him. I think he gained some confidence and he's obviously going to need it going against Alabama. But yeah, I think we talked about it. Michigan already kind of got over the hump against Ohio State. And Ohio State team that we saw still has some firepower. So good for them. They did that. Now they can build on that, get some more recruits. And and try again in a couple of years because yeah I mean it probably would have been worse against a traditional Bama team you know it probably like a team that really like truly spread you out and stuff like that and I think Georgia was amazing and plays amazing it's just it's not like they got unlucky against Georgia it's like this probably would have happened against any like tier one team so good for Michigan great season I still think the best two teams in America are Georgia and Alabama and we've seen that play out so We've, we've seen that play out, and with the exception of the, the very brief time in which we thought, ooh, Ohio State-Georgia, which still, in my opinion, would have been an incredible matchup, and that would have been really fun if you're using Rose Bowl results to justify, oh, Ohio State should have made the playoff. Like, no, no, they should definitely should. Like, when you lose to Oregon and Michigan, get out of here. That's the end of your season, man. Don't care who you are. I'm not going to name names here, and there are very few people who are going to know exactly who I'm talking about while listening to this, my brother being one of those people. There were some Michigan beat writers that were just like beside themselves with <laughs> the Georgia talent on the field. And these are people who have been watching Michigan all year and they saw what it looked like against Ohio State. And they've seen some really good football. Don't get it twisted. They have. But that Georgia speech is different, man. Mm-hmm. It just is. Like you you see it up close and personal and you see some of the like you see some of the the angles that Nicobe Dean is taking. And you're just like, how do you beat that? I how do you beat that? And you see how different it is. Like you can name Michigan's three five-star guys. Dax Hill, who was very questionable going into this one, was kind of on a limited snap count. Weird, kind of bizarre. Like Harbaugh didn't even know if he's going to be playing or he didn't want to release it, whatever. And he kept saying he's dealing with some stuff. And then they had Chris Hinton on the on the defensive line, and all the people who are like talking about Hinton anytime like he did anything, it was like, oh yeah, he's like too slow to be on the field right now. It's like, dude, that's a five-star. Mm-hmm. And then oh, JJ McCarthy is your five-star backup, who's probably like the future future of the program at the quarterback position but like you know you see even him come into this game and look over match and it's just like yeah that's the difference you know like you see some of that stuff play out you see it at the line of scrimmage and 
Michigan had a great year, not to take away anything from, from what they did because getting over that Ohio State hurdle, they now have bragging rights also in the state of Michigan because unlike Michigan State, who didn't score a point in that playoff game <laughs> against Alabama back in 2015, uh, Michigan can at least go to their Michigan State friends and say, hey, we scored a touchdown. See, boom. <laughs> this is C- SEC, overrated as always. No, anyway, this is why, especially in college football, like team dynamics, team schemes make so much of a difference because with Ohio State, they're this dynamic offense that'll spread you out. Their run defense is atrocious. They were atrocious all year they got run up and down the field against utah still so like he's like you said if you're looking at that being like yeah see it's like no like like utah really made them look silly for a while and like that's the difference between ohio state and georgia is that georgia's a team built up front from the run defense so if your option one is to run the ball against georgia you're gonna have a bad time yeah michigan was clearly the best team in the big 10 too like yep. they won the big 10 championship 42 to 3 yeah and at the end of that game we got goal and we got goal we got cuss and joel talking about I put Michigan at number one. Oh, okay. Good for you <laughs> on, on the Big Ten, right. the Big Ten show, the anti, the anti SEC crew. Got it. Thank you for that unbiased take, Gus Johnson, and um, please, please stop yelling at me. Um, Georgia moves on, moves on to the national championship to play Alabama, the rematch that a lot of people are going to be frustrated with. That the system spit this out again. But that is the way that this sport works when you have a playoff system and they get to play semifinal games. Sorry, that's just, that's, Georgia wouldn't have made the national championship necessarily with BCS type rankings, I don't think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, because Michigan would have, I think Michigan still would have been number two. So I don't know, kind of pick your poison with that. But that's reality. Um, And a lot of people are going to fight and say, oh, you need expansion, this, this, and this. I don't know. I don't really think that's going to change anything. I mean, who's the other team? Because Notre Dame got embarrassed too. Like, did you really want to see more Notre Dame football? Like, who's who's yeah, the who's other dropping? team? Yeah, Oregon. You want to see them? They got to run out. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah. All right. Let's go. Let's go to Bama and Cincinnati because this followed uh, a script that I, I thought was really similar to the one that we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Really, really mm-hmm. similar. If if you thought that Cincinnati didn't belong, or if that's what you were upset about by day's end because they didn't give you entertainment. And that's what this all comes down to. We're all selfish consumers of college football and we just want to be entertained. And we feel like a team wrongs us if we're not entertained for an entire 60 minute game. But if you thought Cincinnati didn't belong, you you really weren't paying attention. Wait till you see Michigan, buddy. Oh gosh. (laughs) It was almost like some were so ready to go with that take and they were just bored with the way that this game played out. So they blamed Cincinnati, even though it's like, well, they, they actually held the Heisman Trophy winner under 30 points, which not so long ago was an unreal feat to do that against the Alabama offense, who set a record for consecutive games with 31 points. Mm-hmm. Bama treated Cincinnati like 2016 Washington and like 2017 Clemson. Yep. Really, really similar to those semifinal matchups. When they ran 10 times and threw once on the opening drive, you knew what Bill O'Brien was trying to do. Unbelievable effort from Brian Robinson. <laughs> if you saw the shots of him on the sideline, that was so great. You're just like, that dude is gas. Get him, get him some therapy. Like, <laughs> let let that guy just chill for the next next nine days here. He did his best Derrick Henry imitation. PFF had the yards after first contact, 127 after first contact. Pretty good. Uh, pretty pretty good. However, this year turns out that that dude, fifth year senior who stuck around with all those guys ahead of him on the depth chart, in case you didn't think it before, he he now deserves so much love, a special place probably, and not not gonna get recognized in the same way Najee and Damian Harris and you know some of these other guys, Trent Richardson, will be remembered, Mark Ingram, 
But still, th th that is a special type of performance to be able to battle back the way that he did when you mm -hmm. knew he was banged up going into the SEC championship. So he deserves a lot of love. So do Bama's coordinators. Like, it's, it's not a fun thing to do to give Bill O'Brien <laughs> and, and Pete Golding love. It's the easiest, they're the easiest people in the world to criticize. Mm -hmm. They are. But Bill O'Brien kind of called a classic Bama game and it worked. Bryce Young didn't make any of those key mistakes. He figured things out without John Mechie as his glue guy. Got Slade Bolden involved on that first drive for a touchdown, which I thought was really important. But this was about the running game. And that offensive line should now be so confident after the Iron Bowl when it was like, man, this group does not look championship level. Mm -hmm. I bet that mindset is totally different in that position group right now. And the only way Cincinnati was going to get into that game was allowing one of those elite corners to step in and make a game-changing play. And that didn't necessarily happen. Mm -hmm. Kobe, Kobe Bryant, the other Kobe Bryant, Kobe with a C, he and Sauce Gardner, they're excellent. They're really, really good. And if you if you thought, oh, those guys are frauds, like, <laughs> look at what Jameson Williams was kind of held to and how everybody was talking about him going into that one. I still think Jameson Williams is is a little bit of a of a touch a touch overrated by some of the draft experts. And I'm, I'm a little bit, I was talking about this with, with my brother and some of the things I've heard McShay say on Ryan Priscilla podcast where you're just like, I don't know that he's quite, I don't think he's a Jalen Waddle. I don't think he's necessarily a, a Devontae Smith or, or a Jamar Chase or any, anything like that. And I think, I think we might've gotten ahead of ourselves a little bit. Anyways, that's not the takeaway from that game or anything like that. He could still very well go off in the national championship, end up being a top 10 pick. And mm -hmm. people are gonna say, wow, you're really doubting him. But that's, that's not what I'm here to do. Pete Golding deserves credit, even if people aren't gonna give it to him because he's the whipping boy. That Bama defense frustrated Desmond Ritter and Jerome Ford. Not Alabama transfer Jerome Ford. Cincinnati running back Jerome Ford. Ah, yes. Perfectly clear. Jerome Ford, too. Electric Boogaloo. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but yes. <laughs> that movie that movie existing for the title is all it needs to be. Just break into Electric Boogaloo. They gave us that and left. Anyway. <laughs> when Cincinnati didn't have that opening drive score after marching down the field, it felt like such a missed opportunity. Great shot of that depressed Cincy fan. Yep. Just kind of, kind of recognize that in that moment. Great. You know what? Understanding that, that you don't leave points on the field against Bama and live to tell the tale. It's just not the way that this works. Go ask Auburn about that, the way that they played out in the Iron Bowl. Um, Alabama just kind of casually playing in its ninth national championship in the last 13 seasons. It's going to get a little bit overlooked. Um, <laughs> kind of a big deal. Some would say impressive. Some would say impressive. Well, watching this game and the the mindset that Bama had, where they're just like, you know, we're, we're just going to beat you up front. We're, we're just going to trust that matchup, and we're going to we're going to let our guys kind of take over, and we're going to wear you down. We're going to we're going to make sure that this is never really in doubt. The way that game, that style was played by Alabama. Did you have? those flashbacks as an LSU fan. <laughs> it's it's funny, man, because I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like, not to slander Jamison, but it's not just him. It's the whole receiving core isn't the top-to-bottom dominant. Like, the pictures we've seen are like the five first-round picks all standing together. They just don't have that this year. And then, you know, the run game, like you said, Brian Robinson's a good player. He's just not... I mean, I remember watching Henry 
run and fearing for my life feeling like he would come out of my television and just run me over and like he's just not that kind of player and so like yeah you got to give the, the coordinator some credit and we're talking about an Alabama team that we talked about you know had six rushing guards against LSU that struggled to protect um, Bryce Young against Auburn that like had all these moments throughout the year where you were just like Bill what is you doing boo and like it was just like you look at this game and it's like yeah like this is the standard Alabama playbook it's like you look like this certain way throughout the year you beat the pants off of Georgia you get somebody in the, play, the semifinal, you just kind of play with your food, like my cat Boo when she's upset, and then you just kind of live your life. You move on, and it's like, it's it's funny that, like, the story can be told any number of ways, and, like, if Alabama does end up pulling it out this year, this is going to be, I think, Saban's most impressive coaching job, probably. Um, and as much as, we always joke about Bama fatigue on here, boy, do I not have it, but you have to give credit where credit's due. Um, this team has really like blocked out all the noise, and we've seen it. We just talked about Ohio State with these teams starting to fall backwards and do like like cower in terms of expectations. It's like Alabama never did that. Like Saban pulled the exact right levers to get them to this point, and they're a team that like yeah, they're a great recruiting team. No one's feeling sorry for Alabama, especially against Cincinnati. But the way they beat Georgia to set them up for that one-four matchup, it's like. I would say this team is existing on like the upper 99.99% of what they are capable of. And if you if you want to throw in 2017 as most impressive, and this is depending on if Alabama wins a national championship, of course, because that's the standard in Tuscaloosa. But the difference between this and 2017 is there was a lot of debate about whether or not Bama deserved to make the playoff in the first place in 2017. So people kind of look at that and say, well, you know, they hadn't gotten the benefit of the doubt, even though, in my opinion, they still were more deserving than that two loss Ohio State team. Mm -hmm. But that's probably the, kind of the what would separate this group and being able to win in a variety of ways. So on that note, very quick title game preview. We're going to have a lot more on this on the midweek pod. But I, I want to leave you with a little bit of this. Uh, okay, so this is this is Colin Coward-esque. I'm warning people. Okay. Okay. We're, we're a little bit out there, but I, I promise it's going to make sense. Alabama's Tom Hanks. Okay. We will never see a run of blockbusters quite like the run that Tom Hanks had from 1988 to 2002. If you can close your eyes and picture going into a blockbuster during that stretch, which many people did, you probably were going to get a Tom Hanks movie, let's be honest. Let me run through that list of movies just in case you forget and just in case you don't go to his IMDb page every single time you watch one of his movies. Big, A League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle, Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Toy Story, That Thing You Do, very underrated, Saving Private Ryan, You've Got Mail, The Green Mile, Cast Away, Catch Me If You Can. Most actors would be lucky to star in one to two movies that big, that rewatchable. And all of those movies are rewatchable. I think I have watched all, um, I've watched like probably nine or ten of those movies in the last year alone. In, in that decade and a half, Tom Hanks had 12 of those types of movies, which is just insane. But why I say that run is untouchable isn't just because he was part of all those blockbuster movies. It's that he was so versatile with his roles. He did Coming of Age, he did Drunk Has Been, he did Rom-Com Love Interest, he did War Hero, he did Pixar, he did it all. There's a snake Tom in Hanks, my boot. Who could forget? <laughs> who could forget? All all the iconic lines that Tom Hanks just kind of sticks claim to. I mean, this very podcast, <laughs> figure it out. You know, that's that's Forrest Gump right there. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's this is the type of stuff that we're talking about. Tom Hanks can entertain you, the viewer at home, in so many ways. And to me, that's what makes him unlike any actor of my lifetime. 
Nick Saban can beat you in so many ways. And to me, that's what makes him unlike any coach of my lifetime. This season hasn't been an all-time great Bama team, as you bring up, but it has, however, been a microcosm of that. Bama can do boring like it did against Cincinnati. It can do shootout like it did against Arkansas. It can do dominant favorite like it did against Ole Miss. It can do surprising underdog like it did against Georgia. Talk about the yummy rat poison, whatever. In a rare instance in which Alabama can dial into that, it was able to do so. Alabama can win in so many different ways and did to get to this point. And then there's Georgia. Georgia's not Tom Hanks. Georgia is Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. It's got that one movie that everybody's always gonna talk about, Titanic, right? Georgia's got that one guy that everyone will always talk about, Herschel. Leo has evolved since Titanic, of course. Everybody knows that. Departed, Catch Me If You Can. I love Catch Me If You Can, in case you can't tell. Mm -hmm. um, the Aviator, Great Gatsby. Um, but despite all of those leading roles and what he became for the next uh, close to two decades after Titanic came out, he couldn't win the big one until 2016. Leo finally got his Oscar for Best Actor for his role in, in The Revenant, but what did it take for him to get over the hump? He had to fight a bear to win an Oscar. Not a real bear, not a real bear, but you would never know based on the acting in that scene, which you can go look up the YouTube clip. It, it is second to none, it's unbelievable. You kind of read about the background and, and how it was like a guy, it was like a dude dressed up in like a bear suit and there, it wasn't just like, oh, he had to act this out through a green screen, all these different things. And everybody kind of looked at that and the Academy was like, all right, <laughs> this dude has, has earned his keep. If Georgia finally wins the big one, the big one it has to fight a bear. And that, my friends, is your way too early national championship preview. We good? I was like, where's he going with this? I was like, I was like, oh my God, he fought a bear, the bear's of Alabama. I get it. I don't know. No, that's fine. Leo is Georgia is all time. I love that. Cause yeah, it's like, we have so many good performances, but you don't have what you really want. Like, yeah, no, that, wow. That, that, yeah, I feel it. That's that, yeah. Like I, it's funny. Like I didn't even realize all that stuff Tom Hanks has done. Just no notes, man. I promise I'll make minimal Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio references in the midweek pod when we break down all things Georgia and Alabama part. Uh, what it, like, could we even call it part? T I, 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 I was wondering about this. Like, it feels weird calling it part two, you know, because I get, I get it as part two for 2021, the 2021 season. But at this point, um, how much does this date back? Do you, do you date it back to the blackout game? Or do you just stick to Saban versus Kirby? I feel like you got to go part two squared because it's the part two of this season. It's also the part mm. two of the national championships. True. First time we're getting an in-season rematch, though. That's the interesting thing. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Like I said, we'll have a ton more on that. Let's get to the rest of these games, though, because there were a lot. Um, Sugar Bowl, the one that we watched last night. That sucked for Matt Corral. Yeah. Absolutely wow. sucked, man. Like, I don't know. Like... It feels weird to kind of break this game down because it's so much of a change once he went out. We're not going to sit here and make excuses and say Baylor didn't deserve to win that football game. And I'm going to give Baylor its love in a second here. But I just hated watching him go out like that on crutches because that kid showed up ready to go with that mindset. And kind of the reason why that play happened was typical Matt Corral. Like he's trying to escape. He doesn't just do the Eli Manning thing and go down when you know he barely gets touched or anything like that, and he takes the easy sack. Like he's trying to fight for extra yards. He's trying to like do whatever he can, 
and that kid gave his all to that program and nobody will ever doubt that and that's going to hold a special place in the hearts of Ole Miss fans for what he did and what he meant in these first two years of the Lane Kiffin era but it of course because nothing can ever just be oh that sucked I hate that that happened Nothing can ever be that in this day and age in the internet. It immediately fired up the debate about opt-outs. But why did it suck and, and how did it happen? How does that make you feel, Connor? Of course, right? We gotta get into the psychological, all these different things. And especially after the morning comments that Kirk Herbstreet uh, doled out, he admittedly made a mistake by generalizing and saying this generation didn't like football. Look, we've had Herbie on this podcast before. He's the most biased person in the world when it comes to this subject. and I in every way, shape, or form. It's rich coming from a guy who didn't have pro money to lose and is a mm -hmm. consumer of the sport with a vested interest in these games, working for ESPN, being big time entertainment. So I don't wanna hear from Herb Street about this and I don't wanna hear about all oh, kids these days just aren't the same. Like, look, <laughs> that generalizing in that way, shape, or form when we're talking about less than 1% of the college football landscape is just so unbelievably unfair and I was, Glad that he at least recognized later in the day that he should not have generalized that way because you're just getting further and further removed from the big picture if that's your take on this whole deal. Mm -hmm. Two things can be true at the same time. One is that I was glad that Matt Corral played and he deserved praise for the way that he went about it because reality is these things just aren't guaranteed these days. We're not guaranteed to see a star player on the field and even like Sam Howell playing for UNC in the Mayo Bowl. Like that's the type of thing where they're like, whoa, Sam Howell's playing? Like, they said oh, a star player, Con. <laughs> hate on Sam Howell. Also, I still have my Sam Howell stock. We're not selling that mm -hmm. just yet. We're gonna hold on to it for a little, little while longer. Um, so that could be true. The other thing that could be true at the same time is if your takeaway was, well, he should have opted out you are the ultimate play the results guy. Mm -hmm. If that's the mindset, you're also probably the person who blasts every fourth down call that doesn't go as planned. And I, I've been in those situations and I've seen people that react that way and it just gets annoying. You hate Ole Miss, period. If, if you're this person, you hate fourth down, you hate that crowd, just get out of here. Yeah, and, and you were that person that every single time Lane didn't convert on a fourth down, you're like, see, this is why Lane shouldn't be using the spreadsheet or anything. Like, come on, let's, let's, let's get over ourselves a little bit here. Take the good with the bad. Matt Corral wanted to play in the biggest stage of his career, regardless of where he's getting drafted. And who knows, maybe, maybe a big day in the Sugar Bowl would have moved him up the draft boards after scouts didn't get a chance to watch Kenny Pickett in the Peach Bowl. Mm -hmm. But I digress. And look, if, that's, if you're on one of, the, one of those two sides, you're probably a little bit too far into the weeds here. I, we, we can appreciate the guys who play and maybe not victimize or not rip apart the guys who don't necessarily want to play and risk their, their NFL futures on that. Another two things can be true at the same time thing. One is that outside of that third quarter, it was rough for the Ole Miss offense. It was really, really rough. Mm -hmm. Tough spot for Luke Altmeyer, true freshman. I thought he looked overwhelmed early and he settled down in that third quarter, but then he just made some tough throws where he, he did the old, screw it, this is where I'm going. The predetermined reads, and you just can't do that against the defense as disciplined as Baylor. Your guy, the SoundCloud legend, the former LSU transfer. What's his, how do you say, how do you say his full name? Do you know how to Siaki Ika, are you talking about like the whole thing? I don't got the whole thing, but that's what he goes oh, by. Oh, I thought you had the whole thing. No, 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 that's thing. you, buddy. I just know factoids, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Ika was, he was a force. Like he, uh, McElroy pointed out, he's like, two of the first five plays of the game, he was like game changing. And Baylor's defense was lights out. I, I thought they were just phenomenal. They knew everything Ole Miss was gonna do for the majority of that game. Um, look, I, I think Lane's gonna get into the transfer portal to get his next quarterback. Mm -hmm. 
TBD on who he might be able to get, but I think he might wait for some stud to whiff on getting a job out of spring camp. Mm -hmm. He's going to try and capitalize that way. Altmaier, I think he's got some likable characteristics, but it's just not there yet. And if Ole Miss wants to compete at that level, and if you want to be eight and four, nine and three on a yearly basis, playing in the SEC West, you, you've got to get more production out of the quarterback position. They're losing Jerry Neely to the NFL, he declared. Uh, so I, I think they got to be able to, to figure out kind of what their next step is, especially now with all these different guys in the transfer portal who are gone. Mm -hmm. And now what does it look like without Jeff Levy, who uh, coordinated in his last game at Ole Miss, and now he's going to be at Oklahoma. So the other thing that can be true at the same time, Dave Aranda's a fine football coach. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many coaches in college football right now would you say, yep, pencil that guy in as like a top 10 coach in the sport for the next decade? It would be hard, I man. think. Yeah. I think he's now in that category. Like, he's now kind of on that fringe. I know it's kind of just like one really good season, but, I mean, look what he inherited and, and, and all the different things that he had to do defensively to be able to build that roster up. I, I would look at that list and I'd say, all right, you have to have Kirby on there, Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley. Those are the three obvious ones. Saban is coaching until the robots get get here, so he's going to count for that. He as is well. the robot, Scott. That's the thing. He's going to be the Good one point. who calls the robots. Yeah. Like, All right. I've, I've had enough fun. Everybody, we're not playing college football anymore. Just lost Let's to Iowa in the Point Stadium Bowl. All right, boys, come on. <laughs> it's a wrap here. After those guys, though, you probably have a little bit of pause with everyone else. Like, is Brian Kelly going to do it for another decade? Is Harbaugh now back in that group after what was by far his best season at Michigan? And guys like. I don't know, Mel Tucker, Lane would be included in this next category of, and Aranda as well. Wow, they could be really good for a long time. That's the group that those three guys are kind of in mm -hmm. after really, really solid year two seasons at their respective jobs, you know, easily exceeding expectations. I just always love, and Will, I want you to hit on this too. I've always loved Aranda's demeanor dating back to even when I first started this job and he was putting that Wisconsin team on his back as the defensive coordinator there before LSU poached him. Mm -hmm. And that's not my way of saying that I absolutely think he should have been LSU's next head coach or anything like that. I, I didn't go on records banging the drum saying, Aranda's the no-doubter, he needs to be the guy. Uh, the timing, I think, is really key with, with those things. But has Aranda already kind of vaulted into that top tier for you among top 10 head coaches in the sport? Yeah, so Aranda, like they always talk about him being like the mad scientist is what they called him, always a cerebral coach. And coming all the way from, he's from that Gary Patterson tree. And we've talked about defense on here. Defense is like what made me love football. And he is like one of these guys who's always run this kind of unique system from that tree. And I've always loved it. I, I was you know salivating when LSU hired him from Wisconsin for that reason. And, and I think that the issue with him has always been, you know, can he relate to people? Can he recruit, right? Can he be like, bigger than just the guy who draws up the great plays? And I think you look in the season and you look at, the comments that you know the players had after that game and you look at the turnaround and it's like he's obviously a great leader of men there's just no other way to put it you know he was one of those guys that you don't know if he was going to be like the Dwight Schrute of the office at LSU that was just like okay like you're kind of this like quirky guy like who are you it's like no no like this guy is a CEO this guy knows what it takes to win he uses that like you know giant tech brain and then gets players that fit his certain scheme gets like they have so many unique players in the system and the way that they do things is so different and getting guys to buy in you know talk Talking about the ebbs and flows of this Baylor program going all the way Going all the way back to the scandals and everything, and then through Matt Rule, and then we're back here. And like they had that graphic, that was the biggest turnaround in college football history. And it's just, 
if, you know, like I said, recruiting is a big deal. I'm not going to put that down, but this is the kind of win that kind of puts you on a pedestal if you aren't naturally gifted at that. At the same time, you look at kind of where the new Big 12 is going to be, right? You look at like Texas and Oklahoma leave. Well, like, okay, fine. But look at yeah. Oklahoma State and what they did. Look at what Baylor did. Look at UCF and, and um, Cincinnati. Cincinnati. And, you know, all these teams coming in. It's like, wow, like I could really see a path for him to be something going forward because so much of this is situation, right? We talked about it with Coach O at LSU. It's like you would have easily said top five, top 10 coach after the natty well playing in the sec doesn't let you make mistakes in the new big 12 he's set up to be kind of in this spot where you know even a bad season for him could be seven eight wins and so yeah it seems like he suddenly like through all these things that are in his control and out of his control suddenly has like a top you know top five top six situation in america yeah nobody is recruiting at the level that oklahoma and texas were so in terms mm-hmm. of the teams who actually have that that ceiling that path to the college football playoff like Baylor could be set up really, really well. And I don't know that Aranda is wired for a big-time program. Like, if he doesn't want to deal with the bureaucracy and kind of the the higher-ups and, and deal, you know, the schmoozing and all that stuff, like, that's not that's not his thing. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, he's not that type of guy. Um, I, I kind of wonder what what sort of future he sees for himself. And he probably, I don't even know if he truly thinks about that, if he has, like, a 10-year plan or anything like that. But I, I find myself increasingly fascinated with Aranda because I think he just is very unique in this day and age and it was a great win for him great win for his program and i i think that capitalizing on on old miss being without matt corral like who knows even if matt corral plays that game I, I still think baylor had a really good chance to win based on the way that they were kind of frustrating him early and matt corral made a very 2020 like mistake on that interception to start off the game mm-hmm. we're just like whoa Baylor, Baylor's kind of confusing him a little bit with with some of the things that they're doing, and it wasn't was by no means a banner start, but um, yeah, wanted to give Aranda a little bit of love because dude is just phenomenal what he's been able to to do in a short time there uh, in Waco. Real quick, the, the right. backup quarterback for Ole Miss too, I will say, it's like that's such an impossible situation. Like that's the worst team to lose your quarterback against because Baylor is such a a suffocating yeah. defensive team. It's like, you know, other than, you know, Clemson and Georgia, they're right there. So it's like, if you're coming in as a true freshman, it's like, I wouldn't take too much stock in that game because that is just so nightmarish. Like you said, Matt Corral hadn't, hadn't super figured him out either, you know? Altmaier could have taken that next step, though. If he comes out and you put up like 34, 35 points against that Baylor defense, mm-hmm. you, go into, you go into spring with mm-hmm. all sorts of momentum. And I even jokingly tweeted in the third quarter, he's having one of those don't go into the portal type of court or type of halves <laughs> yeah. that he was off to. And that, of course, that aged horribly. But at this point, I think if you're Lane Kiffin, you have to take a, a realistic look at, at what your future is and, and your ability to compete. And even if that means kind of being like, hey, you know, you get, you're going to have to sit a little bit longer with a, a talented player. He's definitely a talented player. Then that's what you might have to do. Let's go to Arkansas and Penn State here. The Outback Bowl. Sam Pittman. Yes, sir. Arkansas just had its best season in a decade. Unreal, man. Unreal. And I know we've given him his praise a ton on this podcast, but in a league where we often highlight guys going from competing to a national title, we just talk about that. Mm-hmm. Guys that go from competing for national championships to being out of a job, just like that. Like that happens so quickly. Sam Pittman is the total opposite of that. Polar opposite. It gets lost in the shuffle that basically the entire defense was recruited by a different staff and that he has been able to go in there and and change the entire culture from from the ground up. They play so hard for that staff. That bumper pool hit on Sean Clifford. Oh, man. 
man. And Grant Morgan was there. He was competing, friend of the program. <laughs> but that, that was a, a big time bumper pool um, moment. And, and that's the type of stuff that allows you to not have a fix the culture transition year that we've seen at places like Texas. We've seen it at places like Florida State. Arkansas didn't have to go through that. And that's a testament to Sam Pittman. And offensively, KJ Jefferson, not recruited by this staff either, but he just grinds at you. And I know the passing numbers were really bad without Traylon Burks. And it, it was a bit rough at times. And you know, I was talking to Chris Wright, who was there, and he's like, look, I was, I was sitting there in the end zone. He just doesn't trust his receivers in those spots. And that, that needs to get figured out moving forward if KJ's going to take another step next year. But, man, like, becomes the first Arkansas quarterback to rush for 100 yards since Matt Jones in 2004. Like, dude, dude is just so, so difficult to, to bring down. And it didn't matter that Arkansas was predictable in that game. What, what a culture they have already established offensive line play. And I know that like Penn State, five key contributors out on defense, but Arkansas ran for 361. I, and you knew they were running the ball the entire second half. And, and Penn State still couldn't stop it. It, it. The second half felt a little bit reminiscent of what we saw against Texas, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, hey, um, Arkansas is, is telling you this is how it's going to be. And you're, you're not going to be able to get off the field. You're going to have hands on hips. And it's going to be ugly. And it wasn't some dominant offensive, you know, yeah, if you look at the score, you would say that. But, man, when you run for 361, 361? Sorry, depleted defense or not, that is very, very impressive that the Hogs were able to do that. Fun to see Malik Hornsby get out there as well. Dude can scoot. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if they're going to do that a little bit more moving forward with him. Um, because that was kind of the exact situation I wanted to see him in. I didn't want to see KJ get banged up like he did in that game. But bringing in Hornsby to run the ball with a two-score lead just so that KJ doesn't have to add some of those extra hits because he takes a pound yeah. over the course of a game. Like, try and get him out of some of those spots. If you know you're going to be running the football and you're like, all right, our offensive line can, can take care of this. We can we might not be as, you know, we're not going to be as versatile offensively, but they, they kind of were forced into a similar spot against A&M earlier in the year. Um, and that, that I think would be a fun offensive game plan to watch moving forward, more for defenses to have to prepare for. I'm glad that Arkansas fans soaked that in. Buddy, when John Daly is on the sideline and he's got full Christmas beard <laughs> yes. and the hogs are rolling, whew, that, that is a moment. That is a snapshot moment that fans are not going to forget about any time in the future. I mean, when you go a decade and a half without playing in a Florida bowl game, you get to soak in everything of that week and, and you just appreciate it. And you appreciate it a little bit more too when it's coming against a traditional power like Penn State. I think that's kind of something that, that fans like and appreciate with a bowl victory like that. But um, I, I'm glad that their peak was kind of that and not just beating Texas in September. Mm-hmm. If that were the case and we'd look back in the season and be like, ah, you know, Texas kind of sucked and <laughs> maybe we overrated that win a little bit. But uh, Arkansas has elevated its floor in a in an unbelievable way, looking like they're going to be able to run it back with their top two assistants as well. Future probably not going to be a nine-win floor. Not a whole lot of programs yeah. in the SEC West with a nine-win floor, but I, I just think the future is so bright with Sam Pittman, and he walked into that situation, overhauled things so quickly, even though he didn't really have much of a foundation to work on. Um, any Arkansas thoughts before we move on to the other bowl game in the Sunshine State on New Year's Day? Not a thought, more of a question. So KJ Jefferson, right? Like it feels like he's been through wars because he went through like the whole Chad Morris era. Uh, I can only find like three years of stats on him. So like he's he's coming back, right? Yeah. Well, he, he had the one year, one year with uh, with Chad Morris. He's technically a Chad Morris recruit, but he's he is coming back uh, for his for his fourth year. His 
what would be his second as a starter. He's technically got, because he redshirted, uh, yeah, that's right. So he redshirted 2019, 2020 didn't come against anyone. Mm-hmm. This was his first year. He's got three years of eligibility left. Okay. After this year. Yeah. So, like so that, that, that's kind of the point of it. He's like, yeah, he's kind of like, it feels like his career is like almost over. It's like, it's like, oh, like he had this big walk off win. And it's like, no, he's coming back. Like he's kind of just getting started, which is awesome for him. That's kind of just, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's like, yeah, like he's, <laughs> I hate to really like break it down like this. But it's like Sam Pippen was doing this with Chad Morris players. <laughs> This is a guy who is a prolific recruiter in Georgia. Like, this is a guy, we'll see where he goes from here. But the fact that they have that kind of stability at the quarterback position and a dude that, like, man, like, you know he's going to be feeling this career in 20 years, bro. He gets the poop knocked out of him, bro. He gets got, and he gets up. Like, every single game is KJ Jefferson just taking a lick or two that would send us to the hospital and just getting up and doing yeah. it again. Like, he's he's a king. I love him. And if he continues to... To, to ramp up his conditioning. That's been a popular topic of conversation, even going back to fall camp. And he, I think he talked about, there was something they said on the broadcast where he's like limited himself to one bag of Skittles per week. What uh, a king. Like, oh yeah, no, I want him showing up chonky every year and just running people, like losing the pounds. We're gonna have like a chonk tracker where it's like every game he gets a little skinnier and just gets a little faster toward the end of the year. He's just Lamar, he's just, he's just cutting it. And yeah, he's a, I love you him. See- you see the side by side of him and Malik Hornsby, and you're like, "That's the same guy." You can't even tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah that, that's the that's the big thing. If you, if you're wondering like, how does he elevate to the next level? Like, how does how does he continue to to ramp that up? How does he continue to improve? Like, that that's the area where I think he can get better, and I think the accuracy and the trust with being able to take some of those downfield chances. But at the same time, it's like, that's that's what Sam Pittman wants. He mm-hmm. doesn't want a guy that's going to go out there and make some of these costly mistakes because he doesn't want to put his defense. You know, in in those tough spots, and KJ Jefferson was able to do that and be everything that Arkansas fans could have hoped for this year. Kentucky, Iowa, Citrus Bowl. Wandale freaking Robinson. So special. So, so special. What a legend he is for that program. Friend of this year program. Mm-hmm. For him to come up big in that spot when Iowa had all the momentum. Man, like, you talk about everything fans a fan base can hope for. Wandale was that in spades. Like, Still TBD on his draft status as of this recording, so we'll we'll wait to react on any news to, to what he decides with that moving forward. I know they were chaining one more year. Mark Stoops was was saying louder, louder. Let's <laughs> let's let's make sure he feels the love. He is definitely feeling the BBN love. There's no doubt about that. But what a money making game that was for him, for that kid. That that dude. I've been saying it for a long time. He is wired differently, both physically and mentally. And it was the long catch and run that he had on that go-ahead drive in the final minutes there to be able to set it all up. C-Rod gets the game winner, DeAndre Square, who wasn't even supposed to be in a game. Game ceiling INT, cool moment for him. You talk about what these bowl games mean. And Kentucky fans, man, what they, they were they were so fired up. And contrary to what a certain Iowa player suggested before the game, that was not the first bowl game in a long time for Kentucky. Um, Kentucky just wins bowl games. So that's what they do. Ever since Benny Je- Benny Snell got that that ejection in the Northwestern game, Music City Bowl, mm-hmm. back in 2017, Kentucky hasn't lost a bowl game. Yeah, they're tied for like uh, the nation's lead with Alabama in longest bowl yeah. win streaks, which is insane. God, that's Stoops. Unreal. Yeah, Stoops is just a guy. I, I love what they've done there. Two 10-win seasons for Mark Stoops in a four-year stretch at Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Unreal. It, it was it was interesting watching that game play out because there were moments in which you really didn't know how it was going to end. And, well, I, I take that back. You knew how it was going to end when Spencer Petras took over late in that game. <laughs> it was going to be an interception. Um, <laughs> 
there's the odds on that were you were not getting plus money if that was your bet at the end of that game for how this was going to end. But uh, it, it was a great example of what a conservative content, that's the key word here, a conservative content offensive style can hold you back from. Kentucky has a, a coach in Mark Stoops who essentially has a lifetime contract but he went out and he overhauled the offense to bring in Liam Cohen, mm-hmm. who had never called plays at the FBS level. Meanwhile, Kirk Ferentz, who essentially has a lifetime contract at Iowa, much like the contract that Mark Stoops now has at Kentucky, Kirk Ferentz still has his son in that role in year five. Um, lesson on Saturday, nepotism is not the move. Okay, so let's say I just gave you raids of Iowa's offense, and you had five years to figure out how to be an offensive coordinator. Do you think you could do better than this right here? Like, can't fire you. Yeah, in year five. Can't fire you. You just get to figure it out, do whatever you want. I don't know how they were as bad as they were. <laughs> I don't know I don't know how you can have that an offensive line that's so highly regarded. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't think they were a top one hundred rushing offense coming into that game. Yeah, we talked about that. Like, you guys are good at nothing. Like what what is the point of that side of the ball? Just punt. Like just you might force a fumble on the punt, and it's more likely that you'll score. And then, of course, giving the ball back, ultimately, you know, you know I know we talked about playing the results on fourth down in that spot. That, that was one of those where immediately you felt like, oh, Iowa just decided that all that momentum that it had didn't really matter. And they trusted their defense, and their defense was playing really well for the majority of that game. So I guess mm-hmm. we're kind of splitting hairs there, but that comes back to bite the Ferentz contingent in that game. Um, but I, I just love seeing Kentucky fans celebrate like that. On a day when they were without guys like Josh Paschal and J.J. Weaver, that group found a way. And that's all you can ask for. That is all you can ask for. And I, I was sort of bummed that I wasn't there. Uh, I'll be 100% honest. Like, I, 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 well, I technically, you know, I was there. I was calling plays in the Kentucky sideline. I got a little <laughs> bit of heat for that with some of the, the fourth down calls that a certain doppelganger was making. But I wasn't really there. I, it, it would have been challenging to make it to that one uh, and to be at full go after driving back in the morning from Fort Lauderdale. Um, so yeah, I had a little bit of that FOMO watching the way that that played out. But anyways, just still again, so fired up for Kentucky. We're going to have to get cash back on the pod real soon here. Talk about this season and, and kind of the, the plan moving forward and what, they, what they've been able to build in the transfer portal with the success. It's kind of the new wrinkle to this whole deal and what they're going to be able to sell to recruits moving forward. Oh, one last thing. One last thing on this game. We didn't jinx C-Rod. We did the same exact thing that we did to Lynn Bowden two years ago. Mm-hmm. Lynn Bowden came on the pod ahead of the bowl game. And then after we asked him how he wanted to score a game-winning touchdown, he scored a game-winning touchdown. (laughs) C-Rod comes on this podcast mid-December, scores game-winning touchdown. So if you're a Kentucky player and you want to score a game-winning touchdown to win a bowl game, just come on this podcast mid-December. We'll turn you into a hero. We might be the best Kentucky podcast if you just take it strictly off that. And Mark Stoops, again, it's just, yeah. Shout out to all my guys at KSR too. Mm-hmm. Great coverage. Love, love, love the work that they do. Those guys are those guys are a lot of fun. Um, South Carolina. Speaking of a lot of fun, South Carolina UNC, the Duke's Mayo Bowl. What a game! What a game! I was right about one thing and totally wrong about another. I was right about Carolina winning this game by double digits. I did not pick the right Carolina <laughs> to do that. They're the official Will. Carolina now. Like I said, the winner of the Duke's Mayo Bowl yep. is the official Carolina for a year. That's how it works. I love that. I know how we were, we were very consumed with the winner of this game getting the, the Mayo bath, but 
you're right, that, that's good short-term gratification, but the long-term gratification of being considered the real Carolina, that's the type of stuff that you gotta be able to sell to recruits. Huge. Like Shane Beamer is probably gonna own that title for, for a little bit. He's probably gonna be able to walk into to any, any sort of living room across the country and be able to say, yeah, we are the real Carolina. Um, I was dead wrong with the way this game played out. Dead, dead wrong. I really was. Marcus Satterfield was feeling himself in this game. The South Carolina offensive coordinator who took his lumps early in the season and really looked like a guy who's kind of fighting for his job at certain points. I thought he was brilliant. Offensive game plan for South Carolina was on point. Instead of seeing that side-by-side that I talked about with Zabulia, mm-hmm. your boy, him against Sam Howell, we saw what it looked like when one guy had help and another guy didn't. Yep. And look, Damian Pierce, he's the captain of the dudes who deserved better team. Sam Howell's the QB, though. He needed some help. Mm-hmm. He, it, was, it was really ugly for him for a bit. And I applaud him for playing in this game, even though it was rough. Meanwhile, South Carolina, they just busted out all the stops. We finally got the full Dak Joyner package, and it was awesome. That dude, I don't care who you are, I don't care if you're a fan of North Carolina, you can't not like Dak Joyner mm-hmm. because he is such a throwback guy. He's like, I don't know if he won a Herbie award, but if Herbie did his awards after the season, um, given all the things that Herbie has said about bull opt-outs and you know guys transferring and all these different things, like he would love him some Dak Joyner. Kid just wants to play football. He's changed positions multiple times. He goes out there. He does everything. At first, they're kind of calling it the Wildcat. It's not the Wildcat because he's a former quarterback and he can actually throw the ball. That ball that he threw to Jaheim Bell was better than any Wildcat quarterback, whatever you want to call it, that has ever played the position. He is a quarterback through and through, and it just kind of bums me out that he had to be on that Muschamp, coached by that Muschamp staff for a little <laughs> bit. But, man, what a day for him. It's so cool to see the emotion afterwards. Like, don't tell me that these bowl games – are just irrelevant to all these kids and these kids don't care about football that was so so awesome when you got you know your future quarterback spencer rattler he's tweeting about it and all that stuff like that was just a fun fun day from start to finish for south carolina and look now and i'll get to the mail bath in a second i promise now that spencer rattler is part of the equation moving forward will we were talking about this you get rattler you get Marshawn Lloyd, who will shine with both Zaquandre White and Kevin Harris off to the NFL. As we found out after the game, Kevin Harris, who had himself a whale of a day and looked like 2020 Kevin Harris. But you get Jaheim Bell also back, and he's going to get a lot of buzz this offseason after the way he showed out in the bowl game. You get Stogner at tight end coming over from Oklahoma, of course. And you get an offensive line that really improved down the stretch. Gamecocks... They made me write about one preseason take that I had. Of all of the first-year SEC head coaches, Shane Beamer has the most end-of-season momentum. No doubt about it. That was between him and Josh Heupel, who coached in the game immediately after Shane Beamer got the Mayo bath. Man. Before we go to Tennessee, what a day for Mayo. <laughs> Dave, give That's- it up for mayonnaise, everybody. <laughs> the real MVP of this game. Is that the best day in the history of Mayo? It's close. It's got to be, right? Like Mayo was trending for about three hours on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, Duke's Mayo Bowl did it right. Uh, that was that was fun. What, Beamer definitely got a concussion on the Mayo pour. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. He took it like a champ, though. He really did. Dude, okay, that yeah. was another thing that we called correctly is how excited he would be about the Mayo. The fact that he got bonked in the back of the head with the Mayo, got covered in Mayo, and then Dennis Dodd was like, this Mayo bath is stupid. And he quote tweeted the dude while he was probably still covered in Mayo. And he was just like, yo, no, this Mayo bath rules. <laughs> I love I was- Shane Beamer so much, dog. 
I was amazed to see Dennis Dodd in Miami covering the Georgia-Michigan game because I assumed he was still in a body bag. <laughs> I, I, I thought, look, Milk Cartons, he deleted the tweet. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what I'm referencing, he basically like made fun of the premise of the Mayo Bowl and said it was so ridiculous. And then Shane Beamer comes over the top and it's like, I remember back at SEC Media Days when you said we had a two-win ceiling. <laughs> like, hope you find some joy in your life. Like, whoa. Um, Shane, Shane had himself a day. He really, really did. And for all those people like Dennis Dodd and Danny Cannell who uh, complaining about too many bowl games and you know you know who you are, the, the, the people in this business who just kind of seem to hate fun. Mm-hmm. That game was so, so much fun. I, look, I'm not even a mayo guy. Pretty gross seeing cookies and Uncrustables. I love Uncrustables. Seeing those things dipped in mayo. But like when in Rome, Michael Jr. was, you know, Fantastic on that game, yep. great group on the call. All we needed was Alyssa Lang on the sidelines. <laughs> I'm, I bet she was probably glad that she didn't have to deal with all that. She's like, all right, I've kind of already done the Mayo thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be the Mayo girl. Like, that's what you would have avoided, like. <laughs> yeah, like when Will Levis, like the big bite of the the orange, of course, with the peel still on it. I saw Kentucky fans were like tweeting at her and she's like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna opt out of, of taking a bite out of this orange with the peel. Like I've, I've done that whole thing. Um, but look what she started with all the, the food stuff in game. It was a lot of fun, and I love it when college football has groups of announcers who, they they have this awareness, and some of these broadcast teams have learned to have that Mm -hmm. in recent memory. That's not something that we really talk about, we might take for granted, but just not taking themselves too seriously. That's what I think Tom, Jordan, and Cole do so, so well. Like, remember the 2019 Egg Bowl with Elijah Moore, Fake Dog P celebration, of course. Everybody remembers exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Part of what made that game so epic was that we had Adam Amin and Pat McAfee with the perfect call of that one. Dudes who recognized in that moment the significance, who was watching at home, what the Egg Bowl was all about. Mm-hmm. They captured all of it. And that's what you felt like the broadcast team had with the Mayo Bowl. And look, that's what I want on an early Thursday afternoon. Like, that's it right there. That's the entertainment. We're not playing for a national championship here. It's, it's okay to have fun. Like, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. Great win for the Gamecocks. Great moment for Shane Beamer to just have every, every sort of off-season momentum he could have hoped for. He, he made sure that he closed the book on by getting drenched in a bath of mayo. What sense? Whenever you can get drenched in a bath of mayo, you got to do it. It's a it's a positive thing. I'll, I'll say real quick, like I, a lot of my friends are like pro sports guys, and they're like doing the whole like, oh, there's a cheese it king in this bowl. It's like this right here, this bowl game, and the cheese bowl are the exact reasons why college football to me is the best sport. It always has been. It's that yeah, like the NCAA tournament's cool where you have like a team upsetting someone and then pretty usually immediately losing the next week. It's like with this, it's like no, no, you get to ride off in the sunset, just dripping with mayonnaise of victory. And like I just love college football, man. It is, it is great that we have gotten to this point because look, like, if, 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 if there are too many bowl games and if that's something that you, you don't want to partake in, just, just don't watch, just don't watch it. it for the rest yeah, of us. No, no one cares about, yeah, just don't. For the rest of them, I'm gonna continue to be so entertained by the way that, that some of these bowl executives have recognized their opportunity, their marketing opportunities. Like, think of how much Dukes it's like cashing in mm-hmm. on all that advertising. Man, what what a, I didn't see the Darren Ravel tweets on Duke Mayo's, Duke, <laughs> Duke's Mayo uh, getting, you know, this this stock rising to this level and for having this much exposure. Didn't see that. Ravel live streaming just covered in mayonnaise voluntarily. He's <laughs> just talking about mayo. I'm sorry, I've just ruined everyone's Good day. God. <laughs> 
Let's move on to Tennessee and Purdue, uh, the Music City Bowl. Imagine not liking bowl games and watching this one. Um, thank you again to DK for tweeting in the final minutes of this game about how much bowl games lack significance because Kenneth Walker and Kenny Pickett weren't playing in the Peach Bowl. Mm-hmm. Great, great way to recognize what exactly is going on. If there are too many bowl games, as many, well, not many, I don't want to say many, but a few prominent college football media figures have suggested, we, we don't get four hours of, of this. Look, d- did Tennessee get screwed mm-hmm. at the end? In my opinion, yeah. A whole lot of debate about that final stretch into the end zone in overtime because on first glance, I thought it was stopped, but then I... I, I realized that I thought it was stopped because the official came running in, but then you're like, hey, official, why? And, and that's the rule. That's the way that the rule's written. And technically they follow that, but it's still a judgment play of when do you run in? Because you're like, official, why are you running in when it's an all or nothing play and a guy is going to be fighting until that knee goes down? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you not recognizing, oh yeah, like this is, this is basically the entire game right here. Um, he's not a quarterback that's getting held up in the pocket by a couple defensive linemen. You need to let this play go until it's last and final breath. So for that, from that standpoint, Tennessee fans, yeah, you should feel robbed. But there were other opportunities that were missed. Like, mm-hmm. let, let's make no mistake about it. I, I thought even though Tennessee played a, a, a great game, I, okay, great's too much. They played a, a good game. They left some points out there. The clock management at the end of regulation was terrible, terrible. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what was going on. We are hen dogs on this podcast. That that was was bad. Like, why aren't you trying to get six to eight yards to set up an easier field goal? You didn't need the kill shot, especially with Hooker, who had been off on those throws for most of the day. So that was just kind of weird. And then the other thing, Will, you texted me this. Box score doesn't tell the full story, but Hooker just kind of looked a touch off mm-hmm. all day, all day. Box score really will not suggest that. In a weird way, though, that might be good for him long term. Because when he's in a groove, it looks so easy. It really does. And that's just kind of the nature of the hypo offense with the tempo. Mm-hmm. But where he has to get better is putting the team on his back and getting the team out of those ruts. He can do that sometimes, but not enough to put him on that level of like the preseason Heisman Trophy favorites. I've heard some interesting theories about why Tennessee struggled so much defensively, but it, it, it's pretty clear. Look, I, I don't care if it's slippery out there. Um, <laughs> Purdue's two best players were out. That game is in your home state. You get off to a blistering start. And you know, maybe maybe don't let Purdue rally back with a six-year receiver with a number in the 30s and another receiver who is set to have surgery on both of his knees. Those are the dudes who are taking over. I'm sorry. Right, set no to have surgery on both knees? Both knees. Oh. Every single time he made a catch of this, every single time he made a catch in the game, he would like, have to to go to the sideline and be like, no, I'm staying in, I'm staying in. <laughs> yeah, we're just watching Rocky play out in front of this. No, I got this. I gotta fight for my for my university. <laughs> Remember, like at the end of Angels in the Outfield, when Tony Danza, the pitcher, he's like, he's throwing 165 pitches, <laughs> and he's throwing he's throwing like 45 mile an hour meatballs up there. He's like, no, I gotta finish this. I gotta finish. Mm-hmm. That was this dude for Purdue, but like he was unlike you know Tony Danza. He's out there just balling and and was making these game-changing plays. The, the end of that game was so much fun. It was so back and forth. It was wild. It was all over the place. It was everything you would want out of out of a bowl game in that spot. Um, maybe with Tennessee and like with Hooker, it might be kind of nice to not have that hype train totally 
off and running after year one with Heupel because they still got a ways to go to be anything more than the fun and frisky team. We said that was the goal for year one. Don't get it twisted. We said, look, mm -hmm. be like what Ole Miss was last year. Yep. That's the goal for Tennessee. Sell that offense, have that top 15 offense. They're able to do that. They're able to say, look, we brought in a transfer quarterback, a guy who wasn't even recruited by our staff, and we turned him into a stud. You couldn't have asked for anything more than just that if you were a Tennessee fan. But at the same time, they do have areas where they need to be able to get better. Maybe next year, Tennessee will have more of that first quarter energy. Just a thought. Best team in the history of first quarter, not just college football. Organized football. I say he's prime Vince Lombardi for those four, first 15 plays, boy. Play number 16, watch out. I, I would love to, um, to talk to every single fan who has ever had to watch their team um, against a Josh Heupel offense mm -hmm. in, in that, like, you, you just have to be feeling so helpless in those early moments. And then the shift in mindset by the end of, by the end of the second quarter, really, by the end of the second quarter, when you realize, oh, this is actually a game and this is just kind of up for grabs and they're not going to be world beaters for 60 minutes. That's just not the way that this is going to work. Yeah. But tough loss for Tennessee after looked like they had every opportunity to be able to close that game out. Yeah, this is maybe the angriest I've been at a game that didn't involve my terrible football team all year. Literally watching the end of that game, I was just like, you gotta be kidding me, dog. Like, you're right, everything you're saying is correct. Like, they definitely should have beaten Purdue. Like, there's just no two ways around it. Like, yeah, if we're talking about the turf, what do we do? And like, yeah, Purdue was down all these guys, and Purdue's a fine football team. It seems like Jeff Brom's like finally kind of getting his guys together and like kind of going somewhere. And, and they, like, they had one of their better seasons, especially in the modern era at Purdue. At the same time, though, it's like, no Number one, that call was bad. Like, no no getting around that. It's one of those, it's like the, the NOLA no call where it's like, no, you really can just isolate this call. It's okay. Like, you, it doesn't really depend on really anything else. Um, but yeah, so my heart seriously goes out to Tennessee fans. And yeah, like you said, it's a 45-48 game. And just the way that this, that this broke down, you know what I'm saying? It's like 21 points in the first quarter, zero in the second. They get outscored, just blown out of the building in the second quarter. But I will give Josh Eiple credit. I'm so serious about this, about kind of riding the ship in the second half. Like, it wasn't like they were reeling like they were against, you know, Georgia or some of these other teams like Florida that we've seen where they've come out and fireworks and then they just lose all the gas. At least you can kind of build on that and say like they refound momentum. And, and like we were talking about with Hooker, it's like Adam Spencer had a stat which is accurate that like he only had one 300-yard passing game this year, which is bizarre. Like watching him play uh, Hooker. Yeah, I just looked it up. Hooker has only had one 300-yard passing this game. Kentucky? Um, let me double check it. Hold on. Um, yeah, Kentucky. That was his only 300-yard passing game. Before this game. Before yeah, this before game. this game. That's what I said. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So this game, he obviously had a, a big game. But, yeah, so it's crazy to think, like, you know, they're rushing offense. They're a very balanced team. So, like you said, on the one hand, you know, they did a lot of things right. This is a great season. And they should be pumped about literally everything. On the other hand, it's like, ah, wish we had that call go our way. Probably deserve to win this bowl game, but what can you do? Drink every time you hear me praise the Hendon Hooker head fake <laughs> when he runs. I love it. It's so good. It's so deceiving. I don't. I, I noticed it back when he came in in that game against Pitt, and I, I, I like made it a point. I'm like, I need to talk about Hendon Hooker's head fake when he gets when he calls his own number. And he had a couple instances against Purdue where you're just like, they had no idea what was coming. Mm -hmm. He's <laughs> it's special, like a basketball man. thing. He's fun. Um, I, I was doing like the way too early um, SEC quarterback rankings for 2022. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely leaning hooker number two. Hmm. I'm, I'm leaning him number two. And it, it, it's going to be all over the place, kind of two through six, maybe even two through seven 
um, with some of these things. We'll kind of wait and see the way that this plays out with Georgia too and how that's going to impact it. But um, I, I just, I think his floor is really high. And even on a day when he wasn't that good, you kind of look, you do end up looking at the box score and you're like, well, <laughs> you were still very, very effective. And you had, you could have had areas where, you know, you, you made that a lot more impressive. Okay. Um, we got a few, a couple bowl games that were just so long ago that I figured we can run through them real quick and I'll have some more postseason takeaways next week. So we're going to do in 90 seconds. Ready to go, man. We're going to do bowl games in 90 seconds. You got, you got the timer ready to go? Mm-hmm. All right. It is set. Let's start, let's start with Mississippi State. All right. Ready? Go. The Mike Leach Bowl was a proper name, but we got to add something. That was the Mike Leach is maddening bowl. MSU, as Cole Kublik always said, was the weirdest team in the country to the bitter end. That offense reverted. I don't think it's simple enough to say no Charles Cross was the difference for that. Even though Will Rogers took four sacks, the protection really wasn't there. But Will Rogers got greedy at times, I thought. And the only play that went for more than 20 was on a play in which Austin Williams kind of found a seam in the middle of the field and he had a ton of yak yards. Two things I thought were true of this game. One was a reminder that preparing for Leach's offense is a little bit like preparing for a service academy. Mike Leach is three and six in his last nine bowl games dating back to the Crabtree catch when his offense really became all the rage in college football. Texas Tech was was one step ahead the entire time against Mississippi State. There was no internal debate for Leach about showing mercy against Sonny Cumbie, even though Texas Tech still owes him $2.6 million. Instead, the debate was whether Cumbie should show Leach any mercy. And honestly, I kind of thought he did. I kind of thought that game could have been even worse down the stretch. But the other thing that's true, bowl games are total crapshoots with those like kind of six, seven win teams. Like even some of the some of the eight, nine win teams, like it can just be a little bit all over the place in this day and age. MSU was a double digit favorite and it never had a prayer against a six and six team with an interim coach who was one and three with said interim coach. Bowl games are weird. Mississippi State season was weird. Did I get that in? Two seconds. seconds, yep. Woo! Sweet. All right. Uh, let's let's move on to Auburn, and then we'll, we'll kind of recap any, any thoughts you had on either of those two. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. Go. Not a lot of ways to positively spin a five-game losing streak to end the season, especially when you lose to a group of five team in a bowl game played in your own state, but I'll try. On the bright side, at least Tank Bigsby didn't get hurt. He only got the ball once on that last drive because the idea of three consecutive TJ Finley passes somehow made more sense to Brian Harson when there was still three minutes left. But most importantly, Tank stayed healthy. Also on the bright side, Smoke Monday played in this game. He got ejected for targeting because of course he did, but at least he played. Also, also on the bright side, now you don't need to give yourself false hope that TJ Finley is the guy for Brian Harson. He played so poorly that you know your next quarterback should be in the transfer portal because I'm assuming D Davis ain't it if he didn't get any looks in this game. Another positive, now you don't have to make a bunch of room for that trophy with a dude who somehow wasn't in pants or underwear. I I don't know what that was. Take it from me, a Cubs fan who had to witness the birth of Clark the Cub, who was inexplicably not wearing pants. It gets really awkward why you're so proudly honoring someone who has their last, who has their cheeks just hanging out for the world to see. One last positive. I thought Auburn would lose by 18 and it only lost by four. So the Tigers covered my personal spread. And if they had those two calls go go their way at the very end, they probably would have won instead of losing their fifth straight game to close the season. So like I said, nothing but positives here. Under 90 seconds? Yes, sir. You got 10 seconds left. Um, Ouch. That's all I'll say. Perfect. that, That was tough. That was tough. Offensively, I don't know what the future is outside of Tank. I really don't. It's ugly. Will, Auburn thoughts, Mississippi State thoughts? 
Fire away. Um, yeah, no, like, everyone was trying to dunk on the SEC for, like, these bowl games. I think that at the end of the day, if you're getting the second-best team in College USA, which we just talked about, strong conference this year, and you're Auburn. Oh, the American. Or, sorry, American. that's what I meant. Yeah, sorry, Conference USA and American. They, they got to rebrand. Very anyway, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, the second-strongest team in the American. Um, and you're 6-6 six and six Auburn. Like, what are you going to do? We both thought they were going to lose. We thought it was going to be way worse than this. It was still really rough to watch. Um, yeah, and, like, Texas Tech, I think, was the one surprising game. It was like, who? Who really saw that coming? That was the one like egg on the face SEC thing. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think I think yeah, like going through and like Tennessee, like I say for Tennessee, like why do you like okay, like like, like it was the end of the game. So yeah, I think you know these are all like losses, but it's like I, I think if you're Auburn, you got a little bit of soul searching to do just based on the five five losses in a row. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think these weren't really shockers to me or us. I don't know. Yeah, not necessarily. The, the biggest surprise was, was Mississippi State coming yeah. out like that. Oh yeah. And just Leach looking as bad as he did offensively. And you're like, wait, which are we watching 2020 Mississippi State here? Like, what's what exactly is going on? And it, and it was over for the jump. Like, when Texas Tech came out and ran the football like that, you're like, oh, boy. Um, this this might get out of hand in a hurry here. And Mississippi State's defense, by the time they, they kind of knew what hit them, it was, it was too late. And the, the offense just was not there at the level it needed to be. Real quick, real quick on Mississippi State. I think what's getting them, like, they won't do this. This is the most armchair quarterback thing I've ever said on here. But the thing that makes their offense so stale is they have almost no, like, trickeration in what they do. They just snap the ball, and it's just kind of the same thing as over and over again. If you look at, like, Western Kentucky and what, what they did this year, it was, like, an open offense that was similar. But they had more of, like, an RPO type of situation going on where you would, like, suck the linebackers in and be like, okay, like, we're, we know what this is going to be ultimately, but we don't know how it's going to happen. I do think that, like, when Leach came out and started doing this, it was revolutionary. Now he needs to, like, change it up a little bit. Because, like you said, if you have time to prepare for this offense, it's just like a service academy. You, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, yeah, they're really going to do about five things. They're not, like, if you just prepare for those five things, sit your guys back. Like, it's going to go poorly for them. Yeah, and I think that that's just kind of going to be the way it is. Because mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and expect Leach to... To, to make some drastic overhaul of his offense. Exactly. Which is probably not the way that it's going to work. Um, let's close with a little bit of LSU talk. Why? LSU, in case you forgot. <laughs> Why? Uh, I'll, I'll be nice to you. Um, I don't know who's playing football for LSU. Me either, buddy. They're, they're going to have the jerseys. They're going to have the helmets. We're going to be told it's LSU. Um, all right, cool. According to our guy Hester, uh, about 51 scholarship players he's expecting. For LSU. But we ain't quitting because we love football here in Louisiana. All right, Connor? <laughs> Absolutely. If you're not tuning into that one on a Tuesday night, man, what are you doing with your time? Um, look, that, that's after LSU apparently gave out scholarships. Listen, when you give Coach O all of that money to go away and Brian Kelly all that money to come here, you got to take all the bull revenue you can get. That's the only logic I got for you. I want to know what that number was because that's definitely an optics thing. They're like, we can't go into this with under 50 scholarship players. We can't have a scholarship number in the 40s for this game, maybe even in the 30s. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, needless to say, they weren't doing the, the uh, I didn't see a bunch of the videos come out for that. The like, oh, he's going to kick a field goal and he makes the field goal, he gets put on scholarship or anything. Um, LSU is opting out of those, mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently. Um, uh, understandably so. I- expect Canell to live tweet this game and get way too mad that he's watching football. Right. Um, Get ready for that. I know we've had a lot of Canel references on this pod, but that's okay. He kind of brings it on himself. It's not going to be good football, I don't think. This game, I got a comp for you. This game is like Little Caesars Pizza. Okay. I'm going to offend some people probably. A lot of people who are fans of the hot and ready here. Little Caesars is not what you order if you want like delivery pizza. We're talking like Pizza Hut, Domino's, Papa John's, something like that. It's bad by pizza standards. It's fine by food standards. 
the only time I have Little Caesars is when I go to this poker game that I started playing in a few months ago. And I've already had dinner at that point, but hey, I'm just kind of eating for fun, you know? We as college football fans already had a full five course feast of bowl action. This is the game that we're just sitting there, you know, it's on the table and you're like, meh, nothing better to do. Why not? The fact that Little Caesars is not the bowl sponsor for this game is a travesty. It's begging for that. Mm -hmm. Sorry, this game is Little Caesars. Yeah. Are you a big Little Caesars guy? No, no, I really yeah. haven't gotten into it. It's yeah, it's yeah. I, I like the concept. Not, not weirdly, not weirdly. See, I'm fat and I like bad food. There's a difference this guy. I eat bad stuff. But yeah, no, I, I think um, I look at this game, man, and like I was watching the um, 247 like LSU podcast, and they were like, yeah, maybe John Trey Kirkland who gets some reps at quarterback, and I was dying because like that's that dude that came in that was a wide receiver, then went to corner, then went back to wide receiver. It's like yeah, that's where we're at as a program right now. We had Matt O'Dowd or whatever his name is, that's the the walk on guy who's probably playing. Miles Brennan's coming back though, so yeah, like if you're an LSU fan, you're in exactly the same place Florida was, which is that if you get embarrassed by Kansas State, it's funny and they'll make fun of you and they'll talk about oh 2019 was so long ago, but it ultimately does not matter. I can laugh at LSU's expense, just like I laughed at Florida and Missouri to an extent, and still look at that and say, none of this matters. It's fun. Like you said, if you hate football, stop, don't watch football. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be fun to watch some of the young guys and get them get them some run. Let, let, let the future of LSU football come through because the past isn't good, except for a couple of years ago. <laughs> okay, idea. If this game gets ugly and Kansas State is up like, if they're up like 28 to nothing at halftime or something, mm -hmm. we'll make it a four touchdown spread. Okay. When this game, if this game gets to that point, it's Kansas State who has the lead. Here's what we need to do. Colin Klein is going to be the offensive coordinator for Kansas State. Colin Klein. Um, kind of like Big 12 Tebow. No way. Kansas State's version of Tebow. It's yeah. That's actively happening right now? Look it up. Oh, yeah. I loved him. Colin Klein is, Good for him. Colin Klein is the offensive coordinator. So, given LSU's quarterback situation, or lack thereof, mm -hmm. Colin Klein just decides, hey, I'm going to go to the LSU side. Wear a different purple jersey. Mm -hmm. I'll suit up. He's, he could probably still spin it. He's not that old. Mm -hmm. How old is Colin Klein? Let me, let me look this up. Is Colin Klein old? Am I older than Colin Klein? Oh, buddy, you're going to be disappointed. Because, yeah, I was just thinking about that. I think, I think he's older than you think. Oh, God, he's 32. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> Vividly remember watching him be young. That's tough. Wait a minute. So, okay. Yeah, because he's calling plays in this game, I believe. Like, that's, that's Casey's quarterback's coach. Okay, so. Yeah, he would have been my year in school. Mm -hmm. Tom Klein would have been my year in school because he was born in September of 89. Um, gosh, that's really depressing. And I just kind of <laughs> called him old. <laughs> this game, again, enjoy this game. For <laughs> that's the lesson here, folks. Hopefully, Colin Klein, is, uh, he decides to, to suit up in this game. Um, all right. That and, of course, the national championship, last two bowl games that we have left in the SEC. The pod schedule for the rest of the week, kind of moving forward, I think as of right now, this isn't, don't etch this in stone. I think we're going to try and record on Wednesday and have that come out on Thursday. Either that or we'll record on Thursday and it'll come out Friday. Just keep updating your podcast. We'll kind of figure out all that schedule. I'm traveling Friday for the national championship game in Indianapolis. I'll have a recap pod of everything a week from Tuesday, the day after the title game. So we're going to have a lot of great coverage. All of our stuff on Saturday Down South. Dot com right now is going to be taking looks at every every possible angle of this game, not just the the obvious ones, but we're going to have it covered wall to wall. I promise you that. 
so much great stuff coming out right now um, that we have in the pipeline. And for those who don't read SaturdayDownSouth.com regularly, even if you're not a fan of Alabama or Georgia, you should be this time of year, especially with the transfer portal, whatever. That's a shameless plug. Hold on real quick. Let me, let me hype you up right quick. Obviously, the SDS writers are doing a great job, as I always do. But this dude has been braving the Omicron variant, braving these red-eye flights to get to all these different bowl games and give people great coverage. <laughs> and I'm talking to him, and he's just like, uh, and he turns on the podcast, and he's ready to go, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, like, Shout out to you, man, for doing what you do and making my life easy. Because, boy, you have not forgotten a stat today. You are on point, bro. <laughs> well, thank you. We are uh, we are in the home stretch mm-hmm. right now. And it was definitely this weekend was one of those where I was I was going on adrenaline for a bit. Cause <laughs> it was like two hours combined, or like two, or not two hours, but like two nights in a row of combined, like seven hours of sleep. I'm, I'm a seven to eight a night type of guy. So we're, we've been, you know, not, I'm not playing hurt. I'm not, not going to brag about doing anything like that, but you know, we're, uh, we're less than hundred percent college football energy is, is kind of getting me to this point. It's going to get us through the national championship. Very, very excited to get up to Indianapolis for just that. If you have not, leave us a five-star review, go subscribe to this podcast, subscribe to our newsletter, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday Lives Forever. Wherever you get your podcast, join the Facebook group. Hear your name Red On Air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. We'll have a national championship Bold and Brash coming up this week as well. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.